0: Uh, As for me, simply as an instrument in your hand, Lord, that you would be glorified completely in this message. I thank you once again for our Saviour, and I thank you that he leads us into all truth. I pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. So we've been looking at this uh, topic of, uh, of righteous judgment, but the last few sermons have been about unrighteous judgment things that people do wrong, and we're sort of finishing up that this particular topic at the moment. And so when you look at these first seven verses of Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is writing to the Corinthians, obviously he's not with them, and he's aware that in the church at Corinth there was a fair deal of carnality going on. When I say carnal, I mean people who are not using their, their new nature that God has given them, but still using and thinking the old way they were thinking, And he says to them that they're not like, you know, um, uh, mature Christians. In fact, he says they're carnal. In fact, he calls them a bunch of babies. So that word babes, it comes across a lot nicer to us. But he's basically saying you're a bunch of babies. That's what you are. And so he says there's a whole lot of carnality going on because in their minds they had created a division. And and this division was centred around him and Apollos. So Paul and Apollos had actually ministered and had this godly partnership in ministering to the Corinthian church. In fact, they had led many of them to the Lord. In fact, you'll see, he noticed, he says in verse 4, he says, you know, one saith I'm of Paul and another of Apollos. And then he goes, well, you know, I said, what's the difference? I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the increase. The problem was that some people were saying, oh, yeah, Paul is better than Apollos. Paul is the one you should listen to. And if there's any type of thing where there might be a bit of a gray area, it's Paul you're listening to. The other one said, no, no, is a better teacher than Paul. Apollos is a great teacher. He's a better Bible teacher. He saved me. He led me to the Lord. And so the church was actually creating a division around these two people who, there was no division among them. Their carnality was coming out in evil judgment. In other words, they were judging that there was a division, they were judging that, that someone was better than someone else and they wanted to align themselves with the one who was better. In fact, I, I suspect that around this particular time, there was probably a division caused by who was saved by who. You imagine that? Can you imagine if half our church was led to the Lord by someone and the other half was led by someone else and then there was a division in the church as to, you know, who's the better evangelist? You might say that's silly, isn't it? But I've heard of churches that actually have a split over the colour of the chairs. <laughs> Maybe that's a, that's a, a first world problem that didn't happen in those days. Or well, the colour of the carpet or something along those lines. So they imagined a rivalry that didn't exist. In fact, it was corrupting the church so much that it actually corrupted the Lord's table. The one thing that was meant to remind them about the unity they have in Christ and that they'd all been saved through him and that they were one in him. In fact, he says, actually, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we read this every time that we have communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 18. It was such a problem, this division in the church. And I suspect that it wasn't just this issue of, you know, who's better, Paul or Apollos, but there were other things going on. In other words, they had heresies going on among them. And he says in First Corinthians eleven eighteen, he says, "For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. Well, you already knew one division that was going on." He says, "For there must be also heresies among you, that they which I approve may be made manifest among you." So Paul says, "Look, these divisions that I hear about in your church, this the envying that I see, the strife, which means the fights." that were going on are evidence of your carnality, not your spirituality. You know, sometimes people stand up for something within the church and they make it an issue and they begin to fight about it when the other person doesn't agree. Some things are not worth fighting about He tells them that they are immature and they're not even at a point where they can actually accept real meat. He has to keep on giving the milk, the basics, because they haven't got past that point yet. So he's saying, "You can't accept me." You know why? You can't swallow the truth. You can't handle the truth, and so he holds it back from them because he's aware that they're not mature enough to be able to discern. When people um, are immature, um, ever tried giving a kid, feeding a kid something they don't want? It's not easy, is it? Um, that's a bit like the word of God. There are some people in the Corinthian church here, probably a good majority of them, by the looks of it, who were not ready to accept that they were wrong. And sometimes the word of God is cutting. Sometimes it, it exposes our weaknesses, our flaws, our sins openly, and many people can't take it. And we're not different. In, we're not different today either. We, we struggle to accept the truth, especially when it comes, you know, hits me at home and reveals some of my weaknesses. And so he says to them that, you know, you've contrived these divisions, you know, on gossip, rumour, innuendo, things that were obviously fabricated because he goes, who's Paul? Who's Apollos? What Competition is there between us. He goes, there is no competition. It's God who is glorified. It's God who gave the inquiry. Stop stop making this an issue when it isn't an issue. And so he was saying that they were judging, not righteously, but unrighteously. And he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 4, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so once again, he argues They're nothing compared to the bigger picture. And like I said, I suspect that it had to do with the fact that some of them had been led to the Lord by Apollos and other ones by Paul. And so they created created that division among themselves. So that's not just... That type of thinking and, and artificial creation of divisions is not just evident in the Church of Corinth. It's evident everywhere. In fact, it's what's what the old nature does. And so if this is true in a church that was carnal, which means it's still being led by its old nature, would you see evidence of it in the world? Yes, because the world is filled with carnality. It is carnal. The whole world is carnal. So when we look at society in general, it doesn't matter where you look, what part of the world you look at, much of the judgments that people make on matters or about other people are often made, first of all, without understanding proper facts or giving the other person the other benefit of the doubt. Just like the Corinthians, most judgments taking place in our day are made unrighteously. And most judgments have actually escalated in their judgments of other people unrighteously and it's severely increased in our day because there are so many different ways to do it. You know, if you were living back in 2000 years ago, uh, it was like living in a small country town, right? No telephones. You'd have contact with the people around you. Now, you can sit in front of a computer and on a mobile phone and have contact with literally, contact with anyone in the world. You could have contact with thousands of people a day and then you'll be receiving information from thousands of people a day. So this is this social experiment that we're going through at the moment has never been done before. But we're seeing the results of it already. So when you look at it and put together all these online platforms like you know YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and all those different types of things, and people think, oh, what a wonderful way to promote myself. To you know, to share people, to share about what I'm doing with other people, and they're sharing as well. The other people are sharing. You might think to yourself, "Oh, that's a wonderful thing to actually do." And the original, the, the people who originally designed those types of platforms, the idea was that the more you open up to the people in the world, the more contact you have, that that there'd be more harmony in the world. Has it created more harmony? The answer is no. It hasn't created more harmony. On a local level, it's created a lot of mayhem to be honest, because a lot of the stuff that's going on and that's actually shared on those platforms is gossip about other people and lies and exaggerations. I'll guarantee you that every person's Facebook page is not a real representation of who they are. Would you disagree with that? It's, they only tell you what they want you to see first of all, so you're only seeing a part of that picture, and on top of that, they're embellishing themselves to look good in front of other people. That's the bottom line for the whole thing. People want to look good in front of other people, to get more followers, to, to, to be popular. It's not something that's new for us today. It's always been the case that people like popularity. They like to be loved. They love to be revered. They love to be applauded. Guess what the Pharisees were doing? Exactly that. What did Jesus rebuke them about? Exactly that. That they loved the public places. They loved to be in the preeminent. You know when you know when they have a party or when they had a get together, social get together, they wanted to be the ones. That, yeah, come and sit at the front over here. You have the prominent place. They loved that. And when they gave money to the poor, they blow they blow you know trumpets around. and They wear tassels and long things that you know to show people how holy they were. Um, we just have a different form of it today, where people are parading themselves on platforms and showing themselves to the world to be like something that they're not. Well, what ends up happening is that the hatred that's spewed out, okay, in the on these platforms. And look, you might you might be able to shoot yourself in the way you handle it because I, I think generally, Christians generally uh, are more careful about this thing. But let's look at the rest of the world. I'm talking about society in general. When a person is allowed free and unrestrained, an unrestrained place to vent all of their feelings, frustrations, and hatreds and biases and everything else without any repercussions. If I can go placing comments on other people's things, the other reason we don't have comments on our our church uh, YouTube page because you would see that some of the nastiest messages you could ever imagine. You might get five nice messages, and then someone would write something that's actually disgusting. And so when you give people a place to be able to say whatever they like, on the other, from the other side of the world, without any repercussions, they'll do it. Because the carnal nature will come out. And when, when what you wouldn't have said to someone's face because they may tell you off, or they might rebuke you, or they may prove you wrong there on the spot. You can make a comment to a person a thousand kilometres away. They're not going to come to you. It's easy to throw stones from behind a wall that passes by if they don't see you, if they can't actually retaliate. And that's what we have in our world today. And the destruction that it's caused is actually quite prominent. You see, the increase of people getting uh, things like anxiety and mental disorders and suicides, especially among young people, self-image problems, fears, hatreds, hate groups, extreme views, whatever else it is, there's your breeding ground for it. Some of the meanest and nastiest remarks are made online. Do do I believe in freedom of speech, you might ask? 100% I believe in freedom of speech. So how do, you, how do you manage that, though? Well, first of all, use it very sparingly. You're very careful and selective about who you actually associate with. Because the last thing I want, if I had a 10-year-old daughter or a 10-year-old son, is to be hearing um, uh, some of the profanities or reading some of the profanities that I've seen on those platforms. The last thing I want to do. So if I'm a parent, it's a responsibility on me to make sure I monitor what my children watch, what they see, and how they do it. But most of all, couldn't care less. It's part of life. You know, children get mobile phones from an early age now and they don't, and people don't care, which I find extraordinary. So these things need to be managed at the local level because at an at a, at a, at a, at a international level, they're not being, as much as they say they monitor or whatever, or they, they, they clean it up, whatever they do, they're always going to do it wrong. They'll never do it right. That's going to be the bottom line for the whole thing. But any society that allows this type of stuff and that doesn't shield their children from growing up and reading this sort of stuff or becoming involved in it themselves is going to reap what they sow. And our, our culture is reaping, has reaped uh, sorry, reaping the wind because it's sowed, it's reaping the whirlwind because it's sowed to the wind. There is was no safety net, net to catch them because on top of that, the majority of, of the Western world now has rejected God and rejected his principles. So there's no safety net. But this leads back to this whole thing about judging, okay? Judging unrighteously. Because there's a whole lot of judgment going on. When people say nasty comments to other people, they are made a judgment. And then they prof- pronounce pronounced the, con- the conviction, the sentence as well on that person. And so this is all about making judgment, and the world is filled with judgment. And the world is, in people's minds, they've are they been trained from a young age to judge other people. And once you get into the habit of judging superficially or without proper care, in other words, when you judge someone else, the way I judge you and, the, and what I say to you might actually destroy you. You know the whole thing about sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will, that's not true. There are more people committing suicides today than any other time because people are just nasty to each other. And Christians should never be that way with anyone. Our It's the exact opposite of what we've been called to be. So I would hope that none of you here would would behave like that, like the, 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 the lowest forms of society when we've been called to much higher, okay, much higher things. So We need to be careful about our judgments and then how we pronounce those judgments uh, to other people as well. Um, The problem is once you get in the habit of judging, it's very hard to get out of it. Uh, And inevitably, uh, unless you're born again and saved and Jesus frees you from that way of thinking, um, then unfortunately you're going to keep on doing it over and over again. Uh, But it is unique to our day. Go back with me to, let's have a look here. Actually, we won't, we won't, I'll get you to, to turn to an passage in a moment. We'll just leave this one for a moment. But I'll, I'll just remind you about a particular group of people called the Israelites who had been saved from Egypt. God had, had freed them through miraculous means. He's got a million plus people that just, just vacated with riches, mind you. Okay, so they, they left Egypt with a whole lot of gold they'd been given, okay, just to get out. And what did they do as they were heading home? They foolishly judged that it would be better to go back because they missed their onions and their garlic, <laughs> and cucumbers and a few other things that they missed. They weren't getting cucumbers and and garlic and onions in the middle of the wilderness on the way home, were they? So some of them judged, in fact, a good proportion of them judged that it was better to go back to slavery than it was to endure moving forward to the promised land because, hey, you know, we were used to that lifestyle. I want to go back to that. Now we might think of that and we say, how stupid is that? You want to go back to slavery? To back to where God rescued you from, just for some onions, garlic, and some food. But how to think of what we do? Do you think it's actually just common to them? Do you think that, that God hasn't given us that example for us 2,000 years later or 3,000 years later, mind you? We do the same foolish arguments, we make the same foolish judgments. When we see they're complaining and they're murmuring against Moses and God. We say, "Oh, that's a sinful thing to do." God saved you. Have a look at some of the way Christians live their lives in this world. They call themselves Christians, and then they just live like the rest of the world. So that they want that they they want the, they got the salvation, but they're still munching on the onions, the garlic, and everything else because they they still want to be in Egypt at the same time. Foolish. Foolish judgments, short-sightedness, hypocrisy, ungratefulness, they all come from the same place. We do the same thing, though. You know when we have so much in this world, when we compare our lifestyles, and Australia is one of the richest countries in the world per capita, when we compare our lifestyles to what's going on in many parts of the world with billions of people who don't have a quarter or a tenth of what we have, Okay, nor the services that we enjoy, and all the stuff that we that we just take for granted. When we become consumed with something, you know, when something doesn't go right in your life, what's the thing that is always at the top of your mind? That thing that isn't right. So a thousand things could be going right for you, but when something doesn't go right, it it like. says, And the Lord said, Whereunto, then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They are like unto children, sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say, he hath a devil. The son of man is come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Now, what's the, what's the purpose of this? The purpose of this, what this tells us, is that judgmental people, is that when you are judgmental, it's never satisfied to mourn with us whinging and crying. And why do they, why do you bring up those two examples? Because John the Baptist guy's probably demon possessed or something. Look at that guy. Look at the way he's look he's eating. He's eating. Look at the way he's eating those um those locusts. He's munching them down pretty quickly, isn't he? That guy must be demon possessed. And what do they do with him? They killed him. And here comes Jesus. Jesus is going around with his disciples and he's visiting people's houses. Remember Zacchaeus? I'm gonna eat your place today, said That's Jesus' ministry. What was he doing? He was there sharing the gospel with people who would open their door to him, right? But the moment he starts to enter into a house, that guy's a publican. That guy, we hate those people. What's, what's he doing eating with them? Oh, he's gone into a place where she, I think she's a prostitute. And he's having lunch with her. What's he going around to all these houses for anyway? What's he doing? That guy must be a drunkard to be dissatisfied. And a reason to judge. And Jesus says, How do I like in this generation? Like a bunch of kids who just whinge about everything, are aware of these things. Okay? So we don't fall into these particular traps. One of the things we should get into our heads and be very clear about is that when it comes to actually judging on a matter, you can judge a matter without judging the person. Does that make sense? There is a matter that you might need to judge. In fact, we're called to judge, and we're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks. We are called to judge, righteous judgment. So in a particular matter, if someone says, oh, let's go to the pub and, you know, and, and shell down some uh, some beer and let's get, you know, let's get drunk and enjoy, enjoy our time. Okay, the Bible says, what? Well, you're not supposed to get drunk and it's a bad witness in front of other people. So therefore we're called to judge in that matter. Now the next question is, what do I do with the person that asked me to go along? That's the next question. What do we do with that person now? And some people will say, that's it. That guy's out of my books. You know what I mean? I'm much better than him because he didn't pick up what I picked up. Now that's judging the person at the same time you're judging a matter. But the Bible clearly tells us that we can judge a matter without judging the person because this is what we're going to be. This is the important distinction that we need to understand. You can have a different opinion from someone else even without having to look down on that person. We can hold contrasting views from others without making them our enemy at the same time. You know, we we love the KJV, here, right? We love the KJV. It's actually one of the things that makes this church distinctive, okay, that distinguishes us from many other churches. I love the KJV. I believe it's the pure word of God. I have that conviction, and I believe a lot of people have come to this church because they have the same conviction. That they, they don't trust the critical text anymore, so a lot of the new versions and Bibles have all come from what's called the critical text, which we have found out is basically came from Alexandria in Egypt and been corrupted, okay, and it's missing a whole lot of stuff, and so we said, well, you know, where is the true word of God coming from? It comes from the what's called the majority text, okay, so we trust the KJV as the word of God. That's why I can preach to you word by word when I come up here. And they'll have to worry about, oh, that might be wrong or that, because I believe God gave that to us in a miraculous fashion even. But I can have a different view. I can have that view, and someone else may have a different view to me. Does that mean that they become my enemy? No. Because if I make them my enemy and cut them off, then I've closed my ability to be able to share the word with them, to encourage them, to hopefully lead them in that way. I want them to have what I have. You know, if someone shared the gospel with me when I was, you know, 12 years old and 13 years old, and I didn't, I didn't respond to the gospel, they could have cut me off and said, "Heathen, okay, not responding to the gospel." I had to hear the gospel many times by the time I got and I was 19 years of age. So a lot of patience that had to be God had to show to me. Do we show the same patience as other people who don't have exactly the same news as us? Let's be careful that we judge the matter, but don't judge the person and actually convict them at the same time. You know, when I first got saved, my first Bible was an NIV, right? And I was so happy to get that Bible. For me, it was the word of God. And I I dragged that that, that book up every day as I was growing. And I I did grow, okay, I did. To say that I didn't grow would be a lie. But later on, I found out that there is a, a pure form of this and that there aren't parts that are missing. And so my conviction then came to the better thing, right? But once again, if someone had, you know, grabbed me while I had my NIV and I was a brand new babe in Christ, all excited about the Word of God. And then they smacked me over the head. was going around to reach people and reach the lost. And so we need to be careful we don't fall in that same trap. Judging other people's motives and pretending as if we know their heart when we don't. Only God can know a person's heart. We don't. The only thing we can see is what's going on, on the outside. What actually has. Because if we struggle to understand our own hearts, what fools are we to say we understand someone else's heart? So how should we judge them? Well, we should judge according to the word of God. Obviously. The Bible tells us to judge what is right. We need to be on the lookout, first of all, for good things, for right things. And I'll explain to you why that's so important. Not for the bad things. Look for the good things first. There's an old analogy. That I heard many, many years ago about how banks train their their people to actually find out counterfeit notes, right? And so you would think, you know, you know, show them, you know, some of the counterfeit notes that have been made already, and show them how they, you know, how they make mistakes and stuff like that. But they don't. What they do, they they make sure their staff knows what a genuine note looks like from the beginning, and they train them in how a genuine note feels, how it crumples up in your hand, what type of ink it has, what designs it has on it, how you look at it from front and back, the spacing around the actual note, the various features for security on the actual note, they memorize that note. They need to know that note perfectly. So if a a candidate comes along, they can spot it. It's only once you know the real note, once you're fam- so familiar with it that you can spot the, 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 uh, the, the disingenuous one or, the, or the, the, um, the counterfeit very easily. It's only when you know the real one can you find the fact. And that's true for the Word of God. You can't pretend to know the things and judge the things in this world properly without knowing the Word of God. And so our goal should be that we know the word of God perfectly, the way it feels, the way it looks, the way it sounds, what it's telling me, how it's telling me. We should know it back to front. We have one of the most privileged positions in all of history because we have this Bible, each one of us in our hands, whereas the previous generation didn't have it. For thousands of years they didn't have it. And now we have multiple copies of it all over the place. We have it on phones and computers or whatever. You know how, you know how hard we're going to be judged? <coughs> You've got to think about this. The Bible says that he who is given much huh, is a lot more expected of that person than someone who has little. So imagine previous generations and parts of this world where they have one copy of the Bible and they're keeping it sacred You know, and that maybe has to be shared among a number of families. And here we have it. We have it in our pockets, in our phones, in our computers. We bring it to church on Sundays. We have multiple copies on our bookshelves. And then we don't read it and don't know it. How how much judgment are we calling upon ourselves here? Know the word of God. You want to judge righteously? You need to know the word of God. To know exactly what it's saying for you to do. If you want to be able to judge whether something is wrong, you need to first know what is right. To know it so well that any false doctrine or any bad thing becomes obvious and you don't miss it. We need to become so good, and listen, please listen here, we need to become so good at loving our enemies. So good. We need to become so good at blessing those who curse us. We need to become so good at doing good to them that hate us. We need to become very good at praying for those people who despitefully use us and persecute us. We need to become so good at those things that anything that might come along that goes against this type of law, we can spot out immediately. And it's instantly picked up and rejected by us. And the reason is God doesn't want us to be thrown around like children. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus condemned the people of his generation as being like children, right? Paul condemns the in church for being like babies, can't we? And this is the point. Ephesians 4, verse 14 and 15 says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie lying wait to deceive. that speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head of Christ? That's our calling. Our calling is not to be children that get upset, have temper tantrums, and have an ego problem. Our calling is to be mature believers who speak the truth always in love and follow exactly like our Saviour. We are called to spiritual maturity, and that means following Christ. This is how the gospel is meant to be demonstrated in this world. Think of these guys. If we can love our enemies, love them. I'm not talking just tolerate them. I'm saying love them. If we can genuinely love our enemies, if we can genuinely show mercy to those people who hate us, if we can do those things, then imagine what the world will see in us. Tell me they won't be drawn to the gospel. Because no one else is doing that. The world doesn't do that. The world isn't called to love its enemies, do good to those who hate them, to pray for people who persecute. We are called to display that type of love every day of our lives. And the world will see that love. And imagine if we can do that with our enemies, what type of love we'll have for each other? Remember Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. So one of the yardsticks here is if we can't love those people that hate us, then we're going to struggle to love each other here as well. And that's why 1 Corinthians 3.3 3 says, For ye are yet carnal. For as there is among you envy and strife and divisions, are you not carnal? You walk as men. In order to judge what is right, we must first clearly know how to do right, where the right comes from, how to genuinely love others, how to forgive, how to show mercy, how to be patient, how to be kind, how to show grace, how to be hospitable, how to care, how to genuinely love God. Because without those things, there is no love of God. Everything contrary to these things comes from the devil. So Jesus says, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And you might say, well, how do I judge righteous judgment? Well, listen to the word of God. Listen to what it is telling you. Open up your heart and your mind to what the word of God actually says. Don't pick and choose what's comfortable for you. Don't just take... Remember, the Pharisees did the same thing. They picked and choose what they wanted, And they use it in the wrong way. Let's not be the same as them. Turn to John chapter 5, verse 30, with me. Because Jesus gives us an example of how we are to judge rightly. Now, this is. This is the Son of God who came into the world, who was still God in the flesh. And he says this in John 5.30, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. And that is the bottom line for judging correctly. Is it God's will or is it our will? Have I put myself in the middle of this whole thing? Because Paul says, it doesn't matter about Paul and Apollos. It's got nothing to do with them. It's got nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. It has everything to do with his will now. We've been bought with a price. He has paid for us in his own blood. Now the question is, how we glorify him with our lives, not glorify ourselves. We are not in the middle of this thing. Paul didn't put himself in the middle of Paul's. Didn't put himself in the middle, and we should never put ourselves in the middle, because if we if we judge others by the way they treat us, then we are putting ourselves in the middle. Aren't we? When we attempt to judge, please first ask yourself: Is it the will of God that I actually judge in this matter? Is it necessary that I judge? Does the Word of God tell me to judge? Is there a, is there a clear thing the Word of God actually tells me about this particular matter? Am I being led to judge by my emotions? Or am I being led by the Holy Spirit to judge in this particular matter? Please, don't ascribe your actions to the Holy Spirit if they're coming from your emotions. But you might say, but my brother's at fault. He's in error of the Scriptures. He's seen, they're not aware of it. Or he or she is ignorant of this thing. I have to judge them. Should I not judge you can judge about whether something is right or wrong. You can judge whether something is sin or not. You can judge whether something is doctrinally true or error. I want you to take away with you. One is to know the word of God and how to use it, and then by using it, understand your own motives. Okay? So Hebrews five twelve says, For when for for when for the time ye ought to be teachers ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and have become such as need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that use of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. If you've ever wondered who wrote Hebrews, do you remember the guy who wrote about the Corinthians being babes and uh, all that sort of stuff. It sounds much like him, doesn't it? sounds like Paul. But it's verse 14 that I want you to take away with you this morning. But strong men belong unto them that are of full age, which means by rightfully dividing the word of truth, applying it to ourselves first, examining our own hearts before we go examining other people's hearts, but always do it There is judgment to be made, in the spirit of meekness to lift up your brother and sister to help restore them in the faith. God bless you.